We're going to move on now and open up to Matthew chapter eight. So we made it through the uh, we made it through the the Sermon on the Mount, as it's called, through chapters five, six, and seven. We're now coming out of that, um, and we're going to be looking at chapter eight. And as we kind of talked about this in the beginning, the goal is to hopefully make it through the whole book of Matthew <clears throat> to kind of look at the different the different ways that Christ then leads out this teaching. So he gave us his foundation, okay? Um, not every account of the gospel records in the same level of detail that Sermon on the Mount sermon, okay? And so it's particular for Matthew, and it also sets up Matthew's kind of theme as he is going out the rest of his writings, and he's going to kind of give us um, these these pictures into Christ's life after that, okay? And so that's important to grab as we go forward. It's also important to note that some of the things that happen in these sections of Scripture, like in chapter 8, these different healings we're going to look at in particular here, you know, if you read them in other accounts, like Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 7, I think is where the other account is, um, I may be wrong on that, but when you look at these accounts, they seem chronologically kind of out of order, and it probably is that the way we've talked about it before, that with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they weren't both, I mean, there weren't all four of them it, it, ordering their gospel the same way, and it's because, as we've talked about before, you have the whole picture of the gospel, the life of Jesus Christ, laid out by four different storytellers three of which were personally involved um, in Christ's ministry, okay? So it is a little bit of a different perception, a different um, uh, kind of, whatever the word I'm looking for, a different uh, way of looking at it, okay? So we've always talked about Luke was a physician and he has a different way of looking at it versus Mark or, or you know, John or those kind of things those kind of things. Here you're going to kind of see that play out. So if you're looking at this going, well, where can I find this? Why is this not also in Luke chapter 1? And Luke, well, they don't chronologically line up all the time. So you do have to do a little bit of searching. But the same kind of healings here are listed in Mark uh, in, as well as Luke. But it is kind of interesting as you see him coming off the mountain. And it even says in verse 1, when Jesus was come down from the mountain, okay, so he has come down off the mountain, he's preached his sermon, now it would be, as we say, it's game time, okay? So here is kind of the, again, the last kind of example that he's going to give for us as he has just ended his sermon basically talking about false prophets and talking about false prophets who don't back up their words with actions out of faith that bear fruit according to the Spirit, now you're going to have Jesus step off the scene here, and he's going to start putting into action the very things that he talked about. So immediately as he walks down off the mountain, you're going to be able to tell, oh, he's a real prophet. <laughs> this is not a ravenous wolf in sheep's clothing. He's not just talking the talk. He's about to literally walk the walk. Because when he walks down off the mountain, multitudes followed him. Okay? And that's another important thing to think about. And I know there's going to be times where we're going to see the multitudes walk away from him. But there was obviously an attractiveness to whatever he was preaching beyond just... Uh, the man himself. He was not, you know, as, as he is described in Isaiah and other places, he's not necessarily a charismatic, attractive speaker, okay? 
And I know that's kind of hard to grab because he's Jesus, he's God, he invented language, okay? So he's obviously got a mastery of it beyond ours, all right? He invented uh, the ability to speak, okay? He is uh, the uh, primogenitor of all of that. So, um, you know, you would think he would have a charismatic, you know, kind of personality in that sense. But, you know, he actually came with a meek, okay? And a mild spirit, and plus his his examples in Isaiah uh, give us the idea that it wasn't like he came in as all the pictures in modern day Western Christianity have him. Um, you know, he's not this flowy haired, goldy locks, blue eyed, you know, white skinned Jesus. Okay, uh, that would look like something you'd want to put up on a po- on a poster. He looked like an ordinary Middle Eastern son of a carpenter. Okay. So it's not like he came with the fancy hairstyle and the slick talking and okay, he came as a meek, mild person. And when he came though, he came with the words of God. And that had attractiveness to it. It's easy and something for us to think about that when we are speaking and teaching and kind of putting out there the actual true teaching word of God on a subject Okay, it will be attractive to people. Okay, now that doesn't mean that everybody flocks to it because obviously there are people who very much don't want to hear about it. Okay, but there are people who it will sound good to. Why? Because it's everything that the world is not. All right, so you can see through people a lot of times and you can see through their talk. Okay. So when you see people and they're, you know, whatever they're, they're kind of uh, promoting out there or trying to sell you on, you know, if it, especially if it's something very superficial, selfish, whatever, you know, you can usually peel through that pretty easily and go, oh, that's just a bunch of garbage, okay? But when you are speaking the true words of Jesus Christ, there is an attractiveness to it there. There's an attractiveness to the idea of loving your neighbor, okay? There's an attractiveness to treat others as you would want to be treated. There's an attractiveness to that. And people sound like, well, that, that does sound right. That sounds good. You know, people will sometimes cynically say, yeah, if, all, if the world would be such a better place, if people would do that, but we know that's not a reality. Well, but, but think about your statement. You're making it a true statement. It sounds right. Okay? Because it is. It is the only right thing that we have to hold on to because it comes from God, the only author of rightness, okay? So he comes down off the mountain. Multitudes followed him. And what we're going to look at in these next few verses is the is four different healings, okay? So he comes down off his inaugural sermon, and we have these four examples, boom, 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 according to Matthew's telling of the story, of these four subsequent healings. And I think they all have very important kind of factualness to them, okay? They're interesting examples of how, how Christ worked and who he worked in, okay? So the first, if we start in verse 2... And read down, it'll say, And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou will, thou can make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. 
and immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said unto him, See thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say unto this man, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you, that many shall come from the east and the west, and sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. And when Jesus was come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and ministered unto them. When the even was come, or the evening... They brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah, or Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities and, bow, and bore our sicknesses. Now, this section of scripture has four different healings in it. You have the healing of the leper, the healing of the centurion's sermon, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, and the healing of the multitudes. Okay? And not to get too symbolic or too analogous in this, but we are going to look and see why each of these are recorded and what are the implications that we can draw from them. Okay? So first... If you think about what we talked about with the just shall live by faith, we see Jesus walking down off the mountain and putting faith into action. Okay, And yes, Jesus does embody faith. He, faith is a fruit of the Spirit, which is one of the triune parts of the Godhead. And so therefore, faith exists in the Godhead. And here Jesus is exercising faith in his work. Um, that he's doing with the healings. Now, the other aspect of this that you think about and what I think is important for us to grab is, again, Jesus is putting his faith into action. Okay, He didn't preach this sermon and then decide, okay, that's it, I'll hang it up, we'll see you later. No, he's going to walk down and he's going to live out his sermon now Okay, in these four different people groups. This kind of ties in with what James tells us when he talk, James tells us when he talks about faith, when he says, "You can say that you have faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works." And he goes on to say that faith without works is dead. So here Christ is putting his faith into action. He is working in these people's lives. But you also see these peoples, those peoples, these peoples, however the correct English is on that, their faith at work, okay? So, in particular, when you start off with the man who has leprosy. Now, um, again, you can Google leprosy if you want to. And, unfortunately, the first thing that's going to be coming up is a bunch of images of that. So, you may not want to Google it. But a very, um, you know, weird disease, if you can just call it that. 
what it does to people, how it affects you through skin contact with the uh, with the uh, animal or whatever it is that carries it, how it destroys your body. I mean, you just kind of, the, the ends of your fingers and your eyes and your mouth and everything just kind of rots away. It's a very, very um, uh, disgusting kind of disease. And, and that's what it's always been viewed as in all of society. Okay. Now, there was something called white leprosy. All right. Now, again, we're not going to get too biological or into too much details, but the difference was that white leprosy would actually pop up as these big, large white spots on you, okay? And that's why if you've ever seen in the Old Testament or if you've ever seen some of the songs that we've sung and they talk about having lepers spots and cleansing these white spots and those kind of things, that's what that is, okay? And that the leprosy would cover you like this big white thing, okay? I know right after lunch that's really appealing, But the symbolicness of leprosy was that it was viewed as very much as a type of sin. Not that the people who got leprosy were sinners, but that the imagery of leprosy and the analogy that uh, that leprosy was used as was a type of sin. It showed you how an example of what sin was because it was considered incurable. It was considered loathsome, and it was spreadable, or if you can say that, contagious, right? So it's something that you contract, it destroys your life, you can't get rid of it, and there was no cure, and there really wasn't a cure in those days. There's really not a very good cure in these days, okay? There are still leper colonies and places where leprosy exists, okay? And it's still viewed as not a very curable thing, okay? Back then, it definitely wasn't a curable thing. And that's why all in the Old Testament, the Levitical law and everything, these people were told to wrap up and go outside. You couldn't come into the city. You couldn't be around people groups. Okay, Very good uh, kind of infectious disease um, prevention uh, model they had back then. Okay, Wrap up, can't touch your skin, and get out of our city. Don't touch anybody. Okay, Kind of a deal. And if they had to come into the city, you know, they had that famous thing where they had to walk through the city crying unclean, and everybody had to get away from them. These people were way beyond social pariahs, okay? They were basically social outcasts because they were worried that their their issue was going to spread to other people, okay? If you touch someone who had leprosy, you were unclean for seven days. You had to go through the ritual process of becoming clean before you could enter back into temple service and serve God, okay? So there was a lot tied to this. All right. Same kind of punishment was placed on people who did sinful acts. Okay, They were unclean for seven days and couldn't come in the presence of God. So you have this stigma that goes along with leprosy. Not only that people didn't like you, want to touch you, do anything, or be near you, but beyond that, the people that were lepers themselves... Probably contracting this disease on accident okay, or not by purpose... Most of the time, leprosy was not something like they were hanging out in the wrong part of town and they caught leprosy, okay? It's not like leprosy was an STD or something. This was something they got a lot of times and it was not purposeful, okay? But now they've got it and it's incurable, all right? You often think about people who get, again, like diagnoses, like maybe cancer, okay? And when you start looking back at the cancer diagnosis and people are going, okay, well, this person smoked and drank like a fish. Of course, they're going to have liver cancer. They're going to have lung cancer or whatever. You know, and it just makes sense, right? Or someone, you know, whatever it may be. Somebody, uh, you know, they, they 
were around certain carcinogens. They knew they were bad for them. Maybe someone didn't wear a respirator at work when they're cleaning out asbestos, whatever. But it was purposeful, and you could see kind of this kind of risk. Well, yeah, you introduce these risks into your life. You know, again, somebody falls and breaks a leg while they're mountain climbing. You say, well, you for mountain climbing, and you shouldn't have been mountain climbing, okay? Uh, that kind of a deal. People introduce risks into their lives, and they have consequences because of them, and you go, okay, well, that's explainable. But what always bothers us is the unexplainable things, okay, or inexplainable, inexplicable. The cases of cancer with people who have no risk factors, and you go, man, that's just sad. You know, for some reasons, it's not sad when people smoke themselves into cancer, you know. Um, but it's sad with someone who you think didn't do anything to quote-unquote deserve it, right? They, they led a clean life, never smoked, never drank. I had a great uncle who was that way. He ended up having throat cancer. Why? Who knows? Who knows why? But in those cases, we're always like, man, that's so sad. They're afflicted with this disease. They didn't deserve it. You know, all this stuff. Well, you think about people who had leprosy, and now their life is over, okay? And not only is their life over that they know that they have to live a debilitating disease that's going to ultimately take all of their limbs away, and they're slowly rotting off, which is just a beautiful mental picture after lunch. But on beyond that, they're outcasts. Now they have to leave. Family, friends, neighbors, co-workers. I mean, they're gone. They're out. And if there's not like a leper colony outside of your I mean, you're just out there. You're on your own. Abandoned. It's just a very sad situation. Okay? Now, what's amazing to this, and obviously you can kind of pick up on this, these people were probably pretty desperate at times. Okay? But what you see with this leper in particular is, number one, as he's coming down, he is the first one recorded who comes and gets down and worships at Jesus' feet. Can we kind of grab that? The number one, it said multitudes of people were following him. In addition to his apostles he's already called, plus those people that were close to him and that followed him, all these people... The first one, after Jesus has just preached, okay, the first one to worship him is a leper. Comes out of left field, don't know where he came from, comes up, gets down on his knees, bows before Jesus, and worships him. Now, you would think maybe that everyone would have joined on the bandwagon and worshipped him, okay? This is God who just gave a pretty good sermon to you, okay? They were astonished, but it didn't say they all knelt down and worshipped. Here this leper who knew he was in need of a Savior got down and worshipped his Savior. And you say, well, how could he have known all that? Well, obviously there's a lot of Jews who didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus has not given them any kind of, at this point, well, I mean, I guess he did do the water at Galilee, I mean, the Canaan, uh, you know, wine thing, okay, so maybe that's a miracle there. But, you know, it's not like he's come out with a calling card, stood up on the mount and said, hey, I'm the Messiah, everybody listen to me. He doesn't, you know, he really didn't do that. This guy got down and knew he needed to be worshipped, and he knew he could save him. In fact, he says, Lord, if thou will, thou can. That's an immense amount of faith. I know you can, Lord. I know you have ability. 
I know you are the Messiah. I know that you're Jesus Christ. I know you're the Savior. I know you're God Almighty. I know you have the power to cure leprosy. Why? How did he know that? Why did he think Jesus could heal him? Nobody else could. And it's not like he was out of money and just couldn't run down to the pharmacy and get an Advil, I mean, get a bottle of like, you know, leper cure or something like that and make it all go away. It was incurable. But he comes into the crowds, he gets down to Jesus' feet and he says, I know you can heal me. Now that is some faith right there. Especially since so many of us will have issues and we will go to Jesus in a manner that's like, well, I'm not sure you will, not sure you can. Don't know if you know how to fix this situation. You don't know what kind of problem I've got. I've been dealing with this for so long. It doesn't seem to be going anywhere. How am I ever going to get relief? This man is a leper who has a seemingly incurable disease. He goes right to Jesus and says, I know you can. I know you can. That right there, friends, is a profession of faith. I know you can. I have no doubt in my mind you can. This goes back to what Jesus was teaching. Ask and you shall receive. Well, you may sometimes not receive because you ask amiss. Why? Because you don't think it can be done. We look at God not as a heavenly father who is wanting and is able and is capable and is good and righteous and loving. And we look at him as a distant, disconnected deity figure that's too far away to really hear, know, or care about us. But that's not what Jesus is, is portraying here. And this man obviously didn't have that thought either. He said, no, I know you can. I have full assurance you can and what's so amazing about that is there's so many examples of other highly religious and educated people that we're going to see about in the next 20-something chapters who are going to be like, you can't. And if you can, it's only by the power of Beelzebub that you can do it. There's so many people we're going to see who are going to be like, Jesus, you are a fake, a phony, a liar. This leper's never seen him before, never heard about him, don't know anything going on with him. It says, but I know you can. That's faith. He says, I know you can if you will. And that gets back to what we were talking about with the prayer. When we were talking about how, what's the model, what's the formula, how do you get prayers answered? You know, A plus B plus C plus D plus E. You know, if you do it right in the right faith with the right amount of keeping of the commandments and all this stuff. And if you do these things just right, well, then you're going to get you. And I'll, we close it out with saying, no, the key element is that according to thy will. Jesus Christ said, Lord, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And that's the same thing here. This leper is praying right, man. He said, Lord, I know you can if you will. Is it your will, God? And this is something that I think is important for us to grasp because there are times when God says, no, it's not. It's not my will to cure you of that. It's not my will to take that away. Paul, it's not my will to take away your thorn in the flesh. Instead, my grace is sufficient for you. Trust in me. It's going to be okay. It's not my will for that to happen. And that's hard for us to get with. It's hard for us to deal with sometimes. It's hard for us to grasp because we think, well, this just makes sense. If God's a good, loving God and he does good, loving things, then he doesn't want me to have cancer. He doesn't want me to be bankrupt. He doesn't want me to all these things. And we try to force God into that box. And then when it doesn't turn out the way we think it should, we go, well, God, you just must not be who you said you are. There was a... <clears throat> 
I don't know if he was an atheist or if he was just a really um, off theologian, but you know, he made the point that you, he came to this conclusion that if you have like these mutually mutually exclusive things, okay, if God is good and all, if God is all loving and all powerful, then you shouldn't have any bad things happen in the world. Okay, that was his conclusion. So, since we know there's bad things that happen in the world, either God is not all-loving, but he is all-powerful, therefore he has the ability, but he just doesn't love, and so he doesn't care. Or else he's all-loving, but he's not all-powerful, because he loves us, but he just can't do anything about it. Okay? Well, we obviously know that the correct answer to that is that he is all-loving, he is all-powerful, but sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes he knows best about what we really need. Sometimes we think it would be a loving act to take away this cancer or take away this disease or take away this problem in my life. And God says, no, actually, it's, it's going to work out the way that I intend it to work out. I'm sure Joseph would have liked to get to Egypt a little bit of a different way. Okay? I'm sure he wouldn't have liked to have been sold off in traders, thrown in a pit, ended up in jail. That's probably not the way he had it going. Same thing with Paul. I'm sure Paul, when he was promised to go to Rome, was like, yeah, that sounds great. Give me a ship. I'll sail on there. We'll get on the, uh, you know, the carnival cruise line from Jerusalem, and we'll cruise on up to Rome, and I'll preach, and we'll have a good old time. And God said, no, no, no. You're going to go there, but you're going to be a prisoner, and you're going to be enslaved. You're going to get shipwrecked and bit by snakes and all these things. And it's like, but God, are you all loving? Are you all powerful? Can't you make this? a little bit better God said my grace is sufficient my grace is sufficient my will be done again Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane probably you know as he is viewing things going man it would really be nice God if we could figure out a way to do this some other way Maybe let's, let's put an exemption to the rule. Let's throw in some kind of cosmological clause that gets me out of this where I don't have to go through this but he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So according to God's will, it happened. So you see here with this man, he says, I want it. If you will it, then please heal me. And Jesus in this case said, I will be clean. Reached out and touched him, which was a sign of defilement for the clean, holy roller Jewish priest guy. Okay. Shouldn't touch unclean things, shouldn't touch these dirty lepers, shouldn't touch dead things, shouldn't, you know, all these things would make you ritually unclean. Rule number one, you don't touch a leper. And here, here is Jesus with all loving, all power, compassion, says, no, I'm going to touch him and make him clean. Did he have to touch him? No. He didn't touch the centurion servant we see in the next section didn't have to touch him. He didn't even have to. I mean, he could have breathed on him. He could have done like a Benny Hinn style thing. He just kind of, you know, woofed on him. And, and there you go. Leprosy's gone. He could have blinked or wiggled his nose like bewitched or something. And it could have all gone away. But instead he touched him to show a sign to make a point. There are people that we will come in contact with that we are going to view as untouchable. That our society, our mental predispositions, our uh, whatever, societal, racial, whatever kind of bigotry slant that we have is going to say, no, you don't touch them. Stay 10 feet away. Don't get too close. 
You can help them out, but do it from a distance. You know, lob that grace and mercy from a mile away. Don't get too close. You don't want to get too close to them because they may make you unclean. You may not look as good and cleaned up as you're supposed to be. But Jesus gave us the model here. It's okay to touch them. In fact, help them. Seek them out. Again, do to others as you would want to have done to you. How would you feel in the same situation? You've, had, you've lived a life where everyone has said you are not worthy to be in our presence and I'm not even going to touch you because to touch you is a vile and disgusting thing to me. For however long this guy has lived, that's been his life with leprosy. No one would want to touch me. I mean, everybody likes a hug from now and then, right? Especially if we're feeling down on ourselves. Everybody wants a hug. Somebody hug me. Somebody make me feel better. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, that's what Jesus was showing here. Brother needed a hand. He needed a touch. And that's what Jesus did. So we see this beautiful picture of healing here of this untouchable, unwanted, socially outcast person. And what's important about the leper being healed, okay, as the first kind of example that we get here in Matthew is that when you have all these people who didn't want to believe in Jesus and even when you had John the Baptist who was in prison and said you know I'm just not sure hey we, guys we all run out and just ask Jesus one more time I'm in prison going to get my head chopped off not going to be good for me but I just want to know before I die is this really Jesus? Now we're talking John the Baptist. We're one that Jesus is going to go on and say, this guy, there ain't nobody greater in the kingdom of men than John the Baptist. No man born of woman has ever been greater than John the Baptist. Now that's saying a lot, okay? But when Jesus sends them back to John, he says this. This is from Luke 7 and 22. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and to the poor the gospel is preached. I think that's such a profound section of Scripture. And the reason is, is because when we get back to saying, what it means to be a Christian, what it looks like to be a Christian. When you put up your billboards or you're on your Facebook post and you're putting all this stuff out there, these were the things that Jesus said are the markers of the Messiah. Well, you know, the Messiah is the reason we are here, Jesus Christ. That's why we worship. That's who we worship. That's what we're here for. And he says these are the identifiers of it. It's not the theology, it's not the doctrine, it wasn't that he had the right exegesis of Romans chapter 8. It wasn't any of that. He said, this is what you tell John. That the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. All of those people have a great deficit that they cannot naturally overcome. If you look at the deaf, the blind, the lame, the lepers, all of those people who have a natural deficit, they can't overcome on their own. And Jesus has systematically reversed all of those. And the last thing that he puts in there, along with those deficits, is that the poor people have the gospel preached to them. So how important is it to us to actually preach the gospel? 
Because that's who Christ said is the identifier of the Messiah. And not only that, preaching the gospel to the poor people. Using that in particular because all these people here were kind of social outcast people. They were lepers. They were lame. You know, we're not the good looking. Got our clothes just right. Been through church. You know, one-on-one, we know what to do. We know how to bow and to pray. And we know how to give. And we know how to do all this ritual stuff. And walk out and feel pretty good about ourselves. But the poor are just hungry, starving people who want to hear the good news. And they don't always look right. They don't always act right. They don't always do things the way that our 200-year church history in America has established. That this is how it's supposed to be done and all the faux pas you're supposed to avoid. And, you know, don't raise your hand too high because we're Baptists. Keep it down here low, okay, because heaven forbid you be like it says in Psalms and that you lift your hand up in the sanctuary according to Scripture. Amen. You know, all these things that the Word of God actually teaches and not just the social Christianity that we have created in 200 years of existence, okay, Poor people here, they're breaking all sorts of rules. Poor leper here that just wants some help, he does not care about anything else. He's not even, you don't see him saying he announced himself, saying he's unclean, came in and run in and everybody. He just ran and he got down at Jesus' feet. I don't care what you've told me before. I don't care about the rules. I see my Savior. I want healing. Here I am. Has more faith than probably 99% of the people sitting there in that group. Now, his point of view comes from one under the law. He is a Jew. Okay? So, you have him compared to the next guy, which is probably where we'll have to stop, but you have him compared to the next guy, which is the centurion. Okay? As Jesus is entering Capernaum, as we're talking about this, this is north of Jerusalem. This is up around the Sea of Galilee, which is up north. And that's where Jesus began his ministry. That's where Peter's from and a lot of the apostles But he meets a centurion. This is a Roman soldier who is a captain, so to speak, of men. And so he says, he sends to the Lord saying, My servant lieth sick at home. Can you please heal him? Now, in Luke, I think it is, it describes him in a little more detail. The friends that he sends off to Jesus to ask, okay? Asked him and said, this is a great guy. He helped us rebuild the temple. You know, he's a friend of the Jew kind of a deal. But this just kind of explains the character of this man, okay? And he asked Jesus, come and heal him. And we know the dialogue that just we just read through. We know what happens. That Jesus says, okay, take me to him. I'll heal him. I'm okay with that. Now, again, you also have to kind of grab to, like, Jesus saying these things, Jesus knowing exactly where this conversation is about to go, okay? But he says, yeah, sure, go show him to me. Oh, no, 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 no. I know you're a man under authority. I'm not worthy for you to be in my house. Smacks very much of like the publican and the Pharisee who go down, who are begging God for healing or begging God for forgiveness. And it says the Pharisee stands up and beats his chest and says, thank the gods I'm not like this publican. And the publican says, I'm not worthy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a different attitude. This guy's a Gentile though. He's a Roman. He is not a Jew. He is not under the Jewish law. He's not been raised up in these things. He doesn't go to temple every Saturday. He is a Gentile. But he says, Lord, I know that you have ability because you have authority. Okay, just like we were talking about at the end of 28 and 29 of chapter 7. You have authority, just like I have authority. Naturally, I'm over these men, and I know that as my authority stands, I can say to this man, go do this. And guess what? He gets up and does it. 
Because I have the authority and he responds in kind. So here, this centurion, again, you got to marvel at the depth of what's going on here. Yes, it is a very simplistic teaching of a Gentile, you know, having faith outside of Israel. In fact, Jesus says, I have not seen this kind of faith in Israel. Okay. Now that, again, is a pretty profound statement. Israel were the people of all people who should be displaying faith because they've been taught it for 3,000 years. So they should know this stuff. And he says, I have not seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. And the guy was a Gentile. I mean, that had to be even like a double, you know, smack in the face to the Jews that were standing there with him. So you have these two examples. One was a Hebrew under the law. The other was a Gentile outside of the law. Okay. One knew, had, had faith in Jesus and knew Jesus, knew his ability by faith through the law. And the other knows by faith without the law. Okay. But you see this man who believed in Christ. But you've got to notice too that the difference in the, in the kind of playing this out. Okay. The Gentile... The Gentile guy, sorry, the centurion knew about Jesus being able to do this, reasoning it out, okay? He was not relying on a previous historical account of Jesus healing anybody, nor was he relying on a previous historical account in the Old Testament of God healing lepers, which was there, okay? But he was just going off a reason. He said, it just makes sense to me. I have faith. I know you must be powerful, I know you must have authority, and therefore by your authority, I know you can command one who is subjected to your authority, one of your creations, and you can tell that creation to be healed, and I know by your authority you can do it, because I can tell my soldiers to go do something, and it gets done, okay? So here this centurion is reasoning this out, saying it just makes sense in reason, that if you have authority, you have control, and therefore you can heal him without ever having to, ever having to do it yourself. Which is an amazing fact to kind of comprehend. This Gentile centurion who was without any prior, you know, instruction in God's ability just understood some very simple things. You are God Almighty, all-powerful, and the supreme ruler and in authority over all creation. He has gathered that by faith. And so, therefore, he logically put that faith into application. He knew, well, if that, if that just makes sense, that if you are God and you are in control and have all authority, that you can just speak this and it would happen. I mean, that, that reflects like all the way back to Genesis. Speak and the worlds come into existence. Speak and light happens. Speak and animals are created and all these things. I mean, just speaking this. And this Gentile centurion is calling out, grand, omnipotent doctrine without ever being instructed in it. But it also, on the contrary side, kind of gives us the idea of what Paul is talking about in Romans when he is telling the people in Romans that he's saying, no man is has an excuse. Okay, He says, oh man, you are without excuse because you should be able to look up at the things around you, look at the stars, look at the world, and realize that there is a God, okay? 
So he's saying by reason alone, all right, you should be able to look and say that. The reason that you don't is because, as he goes on to say, you're in rebellion. You're wicked. You deny God because you're willfully ignorant of those things. As Second Peter would say in chapter 3, being willingly ignorant of that fact that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. As people being willingly or willfully ignorant, which basically equates to rebellion. Denial of God because I don't want to submit to his authority. But here you have the contrary view. You have a Gentile, non-religiously educated man who has been gifted with faith and is exercising that faith in recognizing Jesus Christ and saying, Hey, I know you have all power. You know, I mean, it even took the apostles and it took a lot of people to get on board with that. All these religious people who have been steeped in the messianic prophecies and things like that, it took them a long time to get on board. This Gentile is on board before anything ever gets going, okay? And in fact, Jesus would even instruct his disciples in the beginning. He'd say, don't go unto the Gentiles, but only go unto the lost house of the sheep of Israel. He's even kind of instructing them and and, and encouraging them to stay just with the Jews to begin with. But here you have this Gentile come up. Jesus is more than happy to help. (laughs) You're going to have more and more cases of that. Samaritans come up. Ooh, those dirty Samaritans. You're going to have them come up. Jesus is fine having a conversation with them. All these things that kind of clue us in who we perceive is deserving of our graciousness, mercy, and righteousness. When we're talking about doing righteous things, when we were commanded to do that by Jesus Christ, then we go to the next level of that. Do unto others as you would have done unto you. Now we go to the next level of that. Who do we really feel like is deserving of my great and grand righteousness? Who is it that deserves this? What group of people? Maybe I'll do it to the really nice, good-looking people. Y'all in here today, you're all looking really good. Have no problem getting up and giving you a hug and showing you some grace and mercy. But what about the drug addict? What about the person who is, quote-unquote, untouchable? What about that poor person who hasn't had a shower in like seven weeks? What about what kind of compassion, love, and mercy do we have for these kind of people? That's where this is start getting rubber meets the road kind of stuff. This is where we have to start evaluating ourselves and going, okay, now how do I apply that? It sounds good in theory. Jesus made a good sermon. I've thought about it a lot. Sounds good. I'm going to pray for my enemies. Okay, well, who's that enemy going to be? All right, I'm good. I'm going to just start doing some righteousness. We're going to start taking care of some people. We're going to start helping some people. Okay, who's that going to be? Are we going to the country club and just going to try to help those people? No doubt there's a lot of them that probably need help. Okay, praise God. I'm just going to say it. But they're not the only ones. In fact... Well, we won't go there, but if you look at what Jesus gave the example of, it wasn't the pretty people. He didn't say it was the pretty people. He's talking about people that are deaf and blind and lame and lepers and poor. So hopefully this will convict us in a way that will cause us to be more desirous of opportunities to help these people. 
but also that God, hopefully we will pray that God will work in us that desire, that kind of freedom to not be so bound by what our society tells us are the people we're supposed to care about and how we're supposed to do it. Because it's, it, to really live this out, it gets downright dirty and gritty and hard. But that's where God told us to work. So may God bless us to work on this.